90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. The only good Indian is a dead Indian. Welcome to Native Spirit Radio here on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. I'm Rhonda, your host here for the next hour. Make sure you stay tuned in the next half hour. I'll be doing your news across Indian country, letting you know what's going on. Hope you're enjoying your day. Had a wonderful holiday and getting ready for the next year, 2016. So this is our last show for 2015. And getting ready for New Year's. We'll get started with some music. And this is Broken Walls with Fly. You're listening to Native Spirit Radio here on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio.
can hear in the silent talk Where are you going to a ghost dance in the snow station manager here at KKFI. And I don't know about you, but this happens to me every holiday season. I 
get a lot of acquaintances and relatives who say, Barry, what do you want for the holidays? And I'm at the age where I really don't need much of anything. And so what I tell them is, please make a donation of whatever you were going to pay to buy me a present to KKFI. And it's real simple to do. You just go to the KKFI website at kkfi.org and click on the donate button on the front page and donate whatever amount you had planned on purchasing for me. And I would ask you, the listeners, if if this happens to you during the holidays, suggest KKFI as the place to donate on your behalf. That website, again, is kkfi.org, and you just need to click on the Donate button, and it is tax-deductible. Thank you, and happy holidays to everybody out there. We hope to keep KKFI around for another 30 years with your help. All right, you're listening to Native Spirit Radio here on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio, and that was Bill Miller and a ghost dance uh, for you guys right before that. Hope you guys are having a warm Sunday evening before we get hit with this nice little winter storm and get ready for New Year's. We'll continue with the music. I had a friend of mine who requested a song for his family and friends, wishing them a happy holidays. That was Tom Arviso, and he is uh, the CEO and publisher of the Navajo Times out of New Mexico, Arizona area. So we'll be playing um, some Jay Begay for him. And this one is In Beauty We Walk. You're listening to Native Spirit Radio here on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Hey, 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 hey,
You know, we're talking for the future generations. I'm Conroy Chino, introducing you to Living Voices, profiles of Native Americans and Native Hawaiians today. Controversial sculptor Bob Houses is Chiricahua Apache. He learned the value of independence from his father, artist Alan Hauser. Bob is a strong advocate for greater recognition of the unique contributions of contemporary Native art. Well, my father taught at Brigham City, Utah at the Intermountain School. And he had a bunch of Navajo students painting signs for grocery stores. And they all went home for the summer. And my father asked me if I'd like to try it, and I said, sure. Because at the time, all the Indian kids that I grew up with, the only option we had was picking strawberries, tomatoes, thinning beets. And I'd been out thinning beets, and I didn't like it. It was a horrible job, and you'd get seven cents a row or something. And so he taught me how to paint signs, and he's a master. And he showed me how to hold a brush, how to twirl the brush. Later on in college, watercolor teachers were amazed at the way I could paint, because... The brushes were an inch to two inches wide, and I just had a natural flow that came from sign painting. The advice my father gave me was uh, real clear. He said, remember, when you paint a sign and you put it in front of the public, you own it. And if you make a mistake, people will know it's your mistake. He said, so here's a dictionary. If you have any questions, I'll be in another room doing my stuff. Always ask. Don't put your name in front of people unless you're ready to present it in that way. My first major award as an artist was at Indian Market in 1971. In 1972, I won the Heard Prize for First in Sculpture. 
And the next day I went to my boss and said, I'm going to move on and become an artist full time. And he said, God bless you. If you ever need a job, come on back. And I haven't been back since. And I came to Indian Market and there was all these Indian people making art. My things I thought would fit right in, but they didn't because I was making political commentary and talking about our condition. And they were just making art for consumption and not internal consumption. One of my pet projects is to make native contemporary art valuable to native people. The family went to Venice for the 97 Biennale. We realized immediately that there's no native presence there. Canada honored their natives. Australia honored their natives. But America would never honor contemporary native art because we have a, a cultural tie and in America, you're separate from culture. You're a self-made man. You're an individualist. You're a universalist. And to me, that's, a, that's, that's total nonsense because art comes from culture. I thought that, well, why don't we do a, our own pavilion in Venice to make art for ourselves, curated by ourselves, and the value of the artwork dictated by ourselves, so that we could show that we are contemporary human beings. Instead of these people of the past who are making decorative objects for a a naive buyer, we would actually be making an international show for ourselves. Why not? Because it's such an obvious direction for, for Indian people to go. The Venice Biennale officially exhibited its first Native American group show in 1999. The coalition of Native artists who organized the show included Bob Houses. This interview with Bob Houses was conducted by Nancy Mythlow. Living Voices is a project of the Smithsonian Institution, National Museum of the American Indian. Executive Producers Kevin Lewis and Elizabeth Weatherford. Project Coordinator Nan Rubin. Writers Peggy Berryhill and Ginger Miles. Mixed at Mercer Street Sound. For more information, check out our website at www.si.edu slash nmai. For Living Voices, I'm Conroy Chino. All right, you're listening to Native Spirit Radio here on 90.1 FM KKFI Kansas City Community Radio. I'm Rhonda, your host here for this 5 to 6 o'clock hour. And we'll be doing your news across the Indian country, letting you know what's going on out there. Well, out of Arizona, the line stretched out the door as the Tahana Odom Nation opened Arizona's newest casino this past Sunday. Some people waited overnight at the $200 million Desert Diamond Casino in West Valley in Glendale, the Arizona Republic reported. The 48,775-square-foot facility was so busy that the parking lot had to be closed for a while, the Daily News Sun reported, although that did deter the festive and emotional atmosphere. Quote, we had a lot of setbacks, a lot of challenges, and a lot of resistance from different people. But we finally got here. We finally got to open, Chairman Edward Manuel told KJZZ. The casino features about a thousand gaming machines. The tribe is currently restricted to Class 2 devices because the state won't certify the facility under the Class 3 Gaming Compact, an issue that is the subject of litigation in federal court. The tribe plans to invest another $200 million on a bigger casino after the Class 3 dispute is resolved. So it was a great uh, grand opening for them.
All right. Well, out of California, the San Manuel and Morongo tribes donated $600,000 to assist victims and families of the San Bernardino attacks. They contributed a combined 600000 to aid victims and families impacted by that terrorist attack, Arrowhead United Way announced, with the contribution by the two tribes. One million has been donated to the San Bernardino United Relief Fund created by the Arrowhead United Way Agency to provide support for those affected by the December 2nd tragedy. The region of Southern California is our home, our shared community. San Manuel and Morongo have joined together at this time to reach out to those impacted so our community might recover to a place of normalcy, said San Manuel Band of Mission Indian Chairwoman Lynn Valbuena. As indigenous peoples of this region, our tribes are connected to this land, its people, and we are called upon to make this commitment to support our community as we heal together. We are committed to bringing solace and healing to the innocent victims and families of this heinous attack. Tribal Chairman Robert Martin of the Morongo Band of Mission Indians stated, We grieve for those who were lost and injured, and we will stand strong with the San Bernardino community as our regions work together to rebuild the lives shattered by this act of terrorism. Fourteen people were killed, and 22 more were injured in a mass shooting that has brought the community closer together. Morongo's contribution, 250000 combined with 350000 from San Manuel, will help tremendously during the long recovery period. Good job to those guys to help support their community. Well, it was an interesting story that came out of Missouri. Um, and this one was by uh, the Springfield news leader newspaper by Wes Johnson. On the shortest days of the year, a Native American etching emerges from the gloom deep inside the Smolin Civil War cave, briefly illuminated by the rays of the sun. The circular symbol with short rays emanating from its edge might be a representation of the sun and a reminder for Osage Indian hunters that now, with winter's chill about to arrive in full force, it's time to leave their Ozarks lowland hunting grounds. Could this be a primitive yet highly accurate astronomical calendar foretelling the arrival of winter? Possibly, according to Eric Fuller, staff archaeologist at Smalling Cave in the rolling hills of the Ozarks east side. Quote, this solstice illumination does not happen any other time of year, said Fuller, during a recent excursion in the popular tourist cave, and the sun symbol is prominently in the center of the biggest formation in the cave. They took a lot of time to put the sun formation right there. So uh, several days ahead of the solstice, which happened last Tuesday, a few days after the sun rises low enough on the horizon to send shafts of light into the cave, bright sunbeams reflect off the rippling stream flowing through the bottom of the cave, shining on a stalactite formation on the cave ceiling and illuminating the sun petroglyph carved into the side of a massive flowstone more than 300 feet back in the cave. There are hints in the historic record about what that etching could be. There's a letter from the government agent in 1820 describing the Osage's year, Fuller said. He wrote that after harvesting their corn in the fall, the Osage moved to Ozark hunting areas until just before Christmas when they would leave. The winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, 
happens now and when the sun hits this petroglyph, it might be a possible indicator to them to head on back up. Fuller says he has spoken with Osage tribal leaders in Oklahoma to learn more about the mysterious petroglyph. He says it's unclear how long it's been there, but some of the etched sun rays have been obliterated by layers of calcite deposited by water flowing down the rock, possibly for centuries. An archaeological dig in 2014 found bits of evidence of human habitation at the cave dating back at least 7,000 years. The petroglyphs share space on the flowstone walls with other markers of human presence in the cave. Name and dates carved into the undulating rock by pioneers, Civil War soldiers, and from later visitors to the cave. The earliest visible date, 1800. The earliest signed graffiti, J. Hanna, 1849. They probably had no idea that the massive cave, more than three-quarters of a mile long, and with the largest opening of any cave in Missouri, was revered as a sacred place by the Osage. He notes that Osage members typically began their day with a prayer to the east toward the rising sun. He pointed out an Indian marker tree still growing next to the gift shop, which was bent at an early age to mark the source of water emanating from the two caves on the property. It also points due east directly toward the place on the horizon where the sun emerges at dawn. Every morning they get up and pray that to the sun for guidance, Fuller said, to have a place where the sky is coming to the earth that was pretty amazing to them. They often looked for places where they could sense the presence of God, and for them a cave cave was a mystery place. Definitely caves were sacred spots for the Osage. It was a nice story coming out of Missouri. And, um, you know, we do celebrate, a lot of native tribes do celebrate the winter solstice, uh, with different ceremonies, and where I'm from, from uh, Southwest, our Pueblo people do ceremonial dances, and they start dancing um, at the Pueblos, and a lot of times those dances are closed off, um, and there was a group of people uh, who were basically learning our dances and performing them for groups of people that they shouldn't have been doing. And they were not Native American. Uh, and they called themselves the Kashare Dancers out of Colorado. Well, they've been doing this for a very long time. It's been decades and decades and decades. Um, and because I think of the presence of social media, that their activity has gotten more press. A lot more people were complaining about what they were doing. And so because of the complaining coming from um, a lot of different groups of Pueblos from the Southwest and Arizona and Texas, um, they were going to be doing their version of their winter dances. And it was supposed to have begun about a week ago, and they decided to cancel it. Uh, so it says, according to the board of directors of the Kashari Indian Museum Incorporated, the sponsor of the Kashari Dancers, they received a formal request late last week from the Cultural Preservation Office of the Hopi Nation asking the troupe to discontinue their interpretation of the dances of the Hopi and Pueblo Native Americans. The public performances of the dances were canceled for this year out of respect for our Native American friends. And until there's been an opportunity to discuss the Hopi's concerns in a timely manner, the board said. 
The Kashari board said all performances have been designed with the utmost respect. The performances have always presented the dances, religion, and ceremonies of the Native Americans with the utmost respect, with dignity and cultural significance. And it is anticipated that any misunderstandings by Native Americans which may have arisen will be discussed, explained, and resolved in the near future, the board said. So, um, so it, it began in 1950. Um, the was formed in 1933, most of whom were in a Boy Scout program. And they've been renowned for American Indian interpretive dancing. And they started doing this. They actually have a museum. They've raised so much money. They've been able to do this. Um, and a lot of our people were just really upset. But it's good that they've canceled it for now. We'll see what happens. I don't know how long this will go for. So we shall see. All right. Well, so like I said, it's the end of the the year, and unfortunately, not everything is is you know celebrating good things. Um, one of the other things that is a reminder of our past um, Native American history, and a lot that hasn't been talked about, is uh, massacres that happened with with Native people, and so um, wounded knee. Uh, the anniversary is coming up on the 29th. So I thought I'd read again uh, Tim Gallego's uh, column that he wrote uh, just talking about what wounded knee means to him. And so this was written a long time ago in 2006. It still um, is a very good um, story of, of what his family experienced. While America agonizes over the contents of the Iraq study group and weighs the options of extricating its soldiers from the middle of a civil war, the people of the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota will gather on a lonely hill overlooking the demolished village of Wounded Knee. Wounded Knee was destroyed during the occupation of the American Indian Movement in 1973 and was never rebuilt to commemorate and grieve the massacre of their ancestors. It was after a night so cold that the Lakota called it the moon of the popping trees, because as the winter winds whistled through the hills and gullies at Wounded Knee Creek on that morning of December 29, 1890, one could hear the twigs snapping in the frigid air. When a soldier of George Armstrong Custer's former troop, the 7th Cavalry, tried to wrest a hidden rifle from a deaf Lakota warrior, after all of the other weapons had already been confiscated from Satanka's band of Lakota people, the deafening report of that single shot caused pandemonium amongst the soldiers, and they opened up with their Hotchkiss machine guns upon the unarmed men, women, and children. Thus began an action the government called a battle, and the Lakota people called a massacre. The Lakota people say that only 50 people of the original 350 followers of Satanka survived that morning of slaughter. One of the survivors, a Lakota woman, was treated by the Indian physician, Dr. Charles Eastman, at a makeshift hospital set up in a church in the village of Pine Ridge. Before she died of her wounds, she told about how she had concealed herself in a clump of bushes. As she hid there, she saw two terrified little girls running past. She grabbed them and pulled them into the bushes. She put her hands over their mouths to keep them quiet, but a mounted soldier spotted them. 
He fired a bullet into the head of one girl and then calmly reloaded his rifle and fired into the head of the other girl. He then fired into the body of the Lakota woman. She feigned death and, although badly wounded, lived long enough to relate her terrible ordeal to Dr. Eastman. She said as she lay there pretending to be dead, the soldier leaned down from his horse, used his rifle to lift up her dress in order to see her private parts, and then he snickered and rode off. As the shooting subsided, units of the 7th Cavalry rode off toward White Clay Creek near Pine Ridge Village on a search-and-destroy mission. When they rode onto the grounds of Holy Rosary Indian Mission, my grandmother Sophie, a student at the mission school, and the other Lakota children were forced by Jesuit priests to feed and water their horses. My grandmother never forgot that terrible day, and she often talked about how the soldiers were laughing and bragging about their great victory. She recalled one soldier saying, Remember Little Bighorn. The massacre at Wounded Knee was called the last great battle between the United States and the Indians. The true version of the events of that day were polished and sanitized for the consumption of most Americans. Twenty-three soldiers of the 7th Cavalry were awarded this nation's highest honor, the Medal of Honor, for the murder of nearly 300 innocent and unarmed men, women, and children. Although 25 soldiers died that day, historians believe that most of them died from friendly fire when they were caught in the crossfire of the Hotchkiss guns. Many Lakota have tried in vain to have those medals revoked without success. Before they died, the Lakota warriors fought the soldiers with their bare hands as they shouted to the women and children to run. The elderly men unable to fight back, fell on their knees and sang their death songs. The screams and cries of the women and children hung in the air like heavy fog. When I was a young boy, I lived at Wounded Knee. Of course, by then, the name of the village had been changed to Brennan to honor a Bureau of Indian Affairs superintendent, but of all the Lakota knew why the name was changed. Because although the government tried various ways to conceal the truth, the Lakota people never forgot, and they always referred to the hallowed grounds as Wounded Knee, and they continued to come to the mass grave to pray, even though it was roundly discouraged by the government. As a child, I walked along the banks of Wounded Knee Creek, and I often had an uneasy feeling. It was as if I could hear the cries of little children. Whenever I visited the trading post where my father worked, I would listen to elders as they sat on the benches in front of the store and spoke in whispered voices as they pointed at the hills and gullies. Never did I read about that horrible day in the history books used at the mission school I attended. Two ironies still haunt me today. Six days after the bloody massacre, the editor of the Aberdeen, South Dakota Saturday Pioneer wrote in his editorial... The pioneer has before declared that our only safety depends upon the total extermination of Indians. Having wronged them for centuries, we had better, in order to protect our civilizations, follow it up by one more wrong and wipe these untamed and untamable creatures from the face of the earth. The author of that editorial was L. Frank Baum, who later went on to write that famous children's book, 
the wonderful Wizard of Oz. In calling for genocide against my grandmother and the rest of the Lakota people, he placed the final punctuation upon a day that will forever live in infamy amongst the Lakota. And finally, as the dead and dying lay in the makeshift hospital in the Episcopal Church in Pine Ridge Village, Dr. Eastman paused to read the sign above the entrance that read, Peace on Earth, Goodwill to Men. So that was uh, Tim Gallego. Um, He was a past uh, publisher for the Native Sun News and since has retired from that. All right, so that is all our news and your history lesson for 2015. Like I said, the 29th is the anniversary of Wounded Knee, and they have writers that are writing right now uh, through the storms to get to Wounded Knee um, for their ceremony for that day. So we're playing a song, um, believe... I wanted to play this song, one of the, the one of those new songs I got, and this one's called "The Four Elements of the Ghost Dance." been ghost dancing in 12-inch ceremony mixed in reverse. I want to go back. Back to when hand drum circle cypher sessions spun the world. I've been ghost dancing on this modern platter of cemented long walks. I pray for buffalo with hose-like hail. Stampede, please bump the table. Please bump the table. I can dance my toes over their grooved backs. Listen to the way hide grinds like pine nuts and gore to the hip-hop of extinct knees that snaps beautiful like a b-boy the tribe is back quests no longer find thin sacks of bones in the plains i've been ghost dancing and i can see narbona crazy horse odb notorious big and red cloud jump from their paved over graves i hear tribal wisdom your words i hear prayer i hear hands Jam Master J shows us Shabik Eh. Through repetition, we dance. Through re- re- repetition, we dance. My moccasins need to be tied with the deer hide fat lace spit shine. Sterlings over stamp. Gotta look vamp before b-boys rip through stage. Decked out in braids. Turquoise chains hang for days like 1862. Sue your ways. And us new braves smile, cause Wavoka, natives don't gotta be the only ones who come back. John Lennon, Robert Johnson, and Keith Moon play Eagle Bone Whistle inside Bob Marley's peyote clouds. We are rainbow proud, forever, like Krylon feathers. We bomb this world in medicine wheel colors. Blue coats point their Gatling guns, but the bullets pass through us. The bullets pass through us. Spreading spiritless splatters on the walls. They say graffiti is a stain. So like wounded knee, we sink in. Paint our faces black mask like we're mad villains dressed in ghost jerseys. We dance on aerosol petroglyphs. Our signatures lie upon all the silver in this glittering world. Shaolin is a cedar pine hogan. 
and Thug Mansion, a deer hide teepee. And we mix, we, we mix these, mix these gathering nations until we all permeate sage. So we bless ourselves and dance. We dance to remember. We dance until the world is gone. Everyone is gone. The world's a ghost and everything is silent. So we drop the sun dagger onto vinyl and let it sing. All right, so that was um, the four elements of Ghost Dance. And that was on the Last Stand Mixtape Volume 1. And you can get that there at laststandmixtape.com. So it's a great place. They have a whole bunch of different artists on that um under that heading, so it Frank includes Frank Wong, Superman, um, MC Jordan, Inez Jasper, and Lee Francis. I've been playing a lot of the different um, cuts off of this, so I hope you guys go check it out. That's the last stand mixtape dot com. All right, so it's about my time to be getting out of here, and Sunset Reggae is going to be coming up next for you guys. Everybody stay warm, have a safe New Year's Eve, and I will see you again in 2016. Be leaving you off with some Cheever's Topa and Native American church music. Oh no. 
Hey, y'all, what they 